0: Hello everyone, it's March 17th, 2020. This week we're checking out the progress and upgrades for those RS-25s that will one day launch a space launch system. Then we have a little more info on the Lunar Gateway and its ultimate fate. It's a very incremental show, but hey, that's Spaceflight and Liftoff. off. <music> And we the tower. Welcome to episode 252 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David.
1: And I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. Yeah, so welcome to episode 252 of the Social Distancing Mechanics. Yay!
0: <laughs> well, we do this every week, so we've got yeah. this down.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. Experts. Yeah, we uh, telework 24-7 uh, on mm-hmm. this podcast. So I, I don't know about you guys, but uh, you know, I'm not stressed out by uh, COVID-19. Uh, mostly because at worst I'm going to get a fever, you know. Like I, I'm, I'm going to be fine. Uh, but what stresses me out is watching all the people behave completely incorrectly.
2: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the whole flatten the curve thing. But I found a little fun way to help out are you guys familiar you guys are familiar with seti at home right oh yeah have you ever heard of folding at home
0: yeah i've heard of it yeah yeah Where you fold proteins i
1: was yeah. gonna say if that's so, the protein one yeah 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 so um they just uploaded a bunch of coronavirus data um if you do folding at home and pick uh so, you know you can pick which disease to support if you do any disease you will start working on uh coronavirus proteins And the goal of this study is to try to develop, you know, try to understand um, the structure of those proteins so that they can develop a drug that will actually block coronavirus's ability to infect cells. And so, you know, a a vaccine is fantastic, but it doesn't help somebody who already is infected. And so if they can develop uh, this drug, they can potentially cure somebody of the disease while they're infected. And I... I am guessing that this is extensible, or that learning about this particular protein or series of proteins—I'm not sure—will help us with all types of coronaviruses and not specifically uh, SARS-CoV-19. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm not 100% sure about that. But that's, you know, it's potentially a, a really important thing. So. Uh, I yeah. have had my computer cranking away at night at 100% folding proteins.
2: Yeah, I'm going to look into that
0: actually. That's awesome.
2: I'm definitely going to be retweeting that, and yeah, trying to tell cool. everybody I can about it. Yeah. 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 Gives you, gives you a feel of some control over this. Yeah, you know? exactly.
0: Right. Yeah, so I don't know how I feel. I mean, I'm probably, I think I probably am a little bit more concerned than you are, or I feel more concerned than you do. I don't. I, that's probably because to some degree, I mean, I know a thing or two about it now just because of news, but I haven't been looking into it extensively just because I kind of don't want to, you know, be reminded of it because it's been like the only thing, you know, that we've been hearing about. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of depressing after a while. So, yeah, I suppose the worst that most people hopefully will get is just, you know, a little bit of a cold or, you know, those types of symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, at the same time, you look at what's going on in other parts of the world, and it's like, well, okay, this has the potential to get pretty serious just because of, you know, like the other effects. It's it's not just the virus itself; um, it's what happens as a result of that, and how that affects the healthcare system and everything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what may be more concerning. Yeah, I heard one person
2: yeah. mentioning how, you know, if you're young, that doesn't mean you're necessarily in the clear because if our the healthcare system gets overwhelmed, then you can be a younger person who was just in a car accident yep. or a younger person who had any other reason to go and get hospitalized and you won't get the treatment you necessarily need.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's the thing is the severe, um, the severe cases go to ICU and, you know, I've been to the ICU here in town. Um, and it's, you know, I've got a fantastic. Uh, level one trauma hospital here in town. But I mean, their ICU is not huge. They have, I mean, it's probably relatively large. They have uh, probably 12 ICU beds, but it's like for, for, uh, you know, a town that, you know, is like 80,000 people minimum, it's not great. Mm-hmm. No, I am I think
2: <laughs> if we're, it, it seems like we've got a bit of a gradient here. I'm very stressed out about this. Oh, if only okay. because I have some frustratingly stubborn family members. Yeah. And I also now have to move all of my college's astronomy and physics courses online, which I mean, when I say I have to do, I can't do it alone, but I have to organize and figure out a way to get this done. And so... And, and by... The 25th so this is a like week, basically, after we air. And so <laughs> it's that's a lot of work. We'll get through it. It's just yeah. frustrating because there goes my spring break. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: I guess in slightly more space-related news, we just had a <laughs> launch attempt by a Falcon 9 that uh, right. was aborted at the last second. I think at yeah. T-0, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. that was kind of fun. And I have no idea why, like, just yet. I'm sure that the listeners will know before we do now.
2: Okay. Mm-hmm. And so this this was a Starlink, right?
0: Yeah, it was a Starlink uh, on a reflown booster and a reflown fairing. I do remember hearing mm-hmm. that, that this fairing was from the first mission. So that does confirm, because I remember we had talked about it you know, during that first Starlink launch, whether the whole fairing had been recovered. I guess the answer is yes, because it is being reflown on this one, so we know that for certain now. Uh, but Ooh. yeah, it'll be interesting to know why it was aborted. Those types of of scenarios have become they just don't happen much anymore because I think that SpaceX has gotten a lot better, you know, just at its launches, but um I remember back in the day, I'm sure that everyone remembers when there was like a, at least a 50% chance that they would abort.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a we had a string of aborts, didn't we? And you know, aborts are good. Aborts are much better than an in-flight issue. um am oh, sure, yeah. But yeah, FYI, uh SpaceX uh did tweet uh saying that uh, there was out-of-family data during the engine power check, but that doesn't really tell you too much.
0: So what does that mean? I've never heard that term.
1: So uh, engine power check is likely one of the engines not getting up to to full thrust, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think out-of-family data just means it's it's out of their safe ranges. I think it's just a, ah. a fancy way of saying that, right? That that seems pretty reasonable.
2: Yeah. Out-of-family
1: makes me think of like, like a category error, like something was yeah.
2: Yeah, there that shouldn't have been
1: yeah you're right if it if it's a category error then i wonder if it's if it's actually an electronics issue where where it's not like any of the individual values was wrong but combined they came out wrong you know they didn't match each other Mm. and so i wonder if that was just a computer issue i don't know
2: it'll be interesting to see yeah yeah
1: it's it's always fun to, to take guesses based on this highly technical language that we don't know the exact meaning of
0: Let's talk about the RS 25 testing that's going on at uh, the Stennis Space Flight Center. There's a couple of engines that, well, they have more than a couple, I'm sure, but they're doing some tests on some of the shuttle era engines, like the old engines that they've had for years, and they're retrofitting them with a whole bunch of new components that are being built in Canoga Park out in California. And the Mm -hmm. idea is these components can be manufactured for a fraction of the cost. Uh, Indeed, there's a little schematic that we can, that I don't know if we'll have it in the notes, but um, we're looking at cost reduction of around like between 20 and 60% for a bunch of components, or I believe around 17 or at least like 17 main components and then a bunch of uh little things like you know tubes and things of that nature but those don't really count mm-hmm. uh, they're mostly talking about the big stuff such as the oxidizer pre-burner things like that
2: and it's pretty cool they got it broken down so like yeah that one should be a 30 percent cost savings 3 percent on the hot gas manifold. on valves and actuators.
0: A whole lot of cost reduction, which is good, but they have to test all these things. And so they're doing several rounds of testing at the test stand at Stennis. So yeah, the two engines are uh, the RS-25 EO-528 and the EO-525. So the EO or the E0528 is for the retrofit 2 tests, which I think is coming up shortly. And then uh, the 525 is for a retrofit 3, which will happen later on. Essentially, these two engines are being fully rebuilt. The only thing that's remaining is uh, the actual power head, Uh, but everything else is being replaced, including the engine nozzle itself. And one cool thing that they've done at Stennis is that they have allowed for the engine gimbling tests, which I I didn't know that you couldn't do in the first place. I thought that that was something that you could always do because I've seen tests, and I guess it hasn't been for the RS-25, but I swear I've seen tests where they have gimbled the engines, but um, I guess Mm -hmm. that that has not happened. So this will allow for that. But what's interesting is that these tests do not allow the gimbling of the engine to make sure that it won't bump into another engine. This is just to make sure that, you know, the nozzle doesn't bump into any other components.
2: And apparently this, this takes a bit of time, right? They kind of like, you know, give it a degree, wait, you know, yeah. verify everything and then move it in a different direction, wait, check out, verify everything, the clearance, and then, yeah. Yeah, apparently
0: this might take like, it could take weeks, I believe, just to do the gimbal tests. So, mm. But I mean, as I'm thinking about the SLS, if you were to gimbal the engines, right, you would have to gimbal them all together, right? Or at least I think so. I don't know how gimbling works on that particular vehicle, but it does not seem reasonable that they would all have to be gimbled. And so you wouldn't think that they would necessarily be in danger of bumping into each other because they're all moving in unison. Like, like right. you wouldn't have two engines move towards each other. That wouldn't make any sense.
2: Yeah, if if you gave them any, any kind of radial component like, mm-hmm. relative be, to each other, then you would just be offsetting right the other engines work.
0: But it might be to prevent the nozzle from, like, bumping into the power head of the other engine. Perhaps I was that's say, what it is. I don't know.
2: Yeah, evidently. I mean, let's get a nice... I want to look at a nice, clear image of the bottom of
1: the core stage now to kind of <laughs> help frame that. Right. They don't all necessarily move in the same direction. Let's see. If you had a roll... Co- right. If it's a, if it's a roll... Oh, um, sure. You're going to have them all people. moving orthogonal to each other. And so, if you have a roll and a pitch maneuver at the same time, yeah. If you have a roll okay. and a pitch at, at the same, or a roll and a and a yaw at the same time, yeah. You could have them moving. You could have two of them moving, you know, mm-hmm. quote unquote, towards each other. Not a, not exactly like not cross-eyed, but they would be.
2: Now, I don't know about you, David, in my, because I was picking up what you are putting down, but in my brain, I was thinking like, you know, you wouldn't want them to move like I don't know, like a baby deer kind of. You know, legs splaying out, sort of thing, right? Is that the kind of uncoordinated motion you were thinking of? <laughs>
0: well, I mean, possibly that, but probably more likely you don't want the nozzles to knock into each other. So I mm-hmm. would think it'd be right. the other direction. Right. Yeah. So
1: yeah, because there's, there's, there's get... nothing else down there to really contact. It's not like they have an engine shroud, like a skirt around the engines or mm-hmm. around the bells. So, and physically contacting each other is probably not even the only thing you have to worry about. They probably have a certain amount of clearance just for. I don't know, radiative cooling and if if two engine nozzles get too close to each other they can, you know, have mm-hmm. point overheats. I don't I I don't know, this is a guess,
2: but and maybe if they're let's see if I can get this right. Maybe if they uh if they got too close to each other and they're what? Over
1: pressured? Oh oh
2: overexpanded. Overexpanded, then yeah. maybe you could have weird instabilities happening where there's interaction there. Yeah, yeah
1: that yeah, that's a possibility. But I, I feel like they their exhaust plumes interact so strongly downstream anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, you know, you get you get those little negative pressure bubbles in between the engines where you get a little bit of flame sucked up in there. So, th- mm-hmm. I mean, I like definitely that's definitely a possibility. But I'm having a hard time actually visualizing what what that might look like. But yeah, totally, right. totally a good point.
2: And so I I have lost track, but if I remember correctly, so this is sort of kind of downstream after this green run, like that those engines are already. On there and kind of have already passed their earlier testing. And so this is sort of for later Artemis, I
0: guess. (laughs) This is not to qualify specific engines for flight. I think it's just to qualify the components because there are all these new components that are being manufactured by a new process. And so that's what they have to qualify. And then once that's done, then you know they can actually start integrating the actual engines for flight. And then, yeah, Mm -hmm. they'll still have to test those too, but that will be a different kind of test.
2: Copy that. Okay, so I guess my question then was that none of the four engines on the core stage right now have been retrofitted, like retrofit, retrofit 2 or Retrofit 3 are going to test. I didn't
0: know that there were engines that were on the core stage. Yeah, I guess there, there have been, right? Yeah, because we talked about that. The
1: core stage is is fully integrated and on a, mm-hmm. uh, on a barge right now.
0: I guess that that one has some of the older components.
1: Yeah, I, I believe that um, that the engines on the current SLS core stage for Artemis 1, I believe that they are like retrofit one or retrofit 0.5 point five or something. Oh, okay. Like I know that they did they did some work, but it's not it's not this work. I, I let me
0: see. that sounds right I to did. me. Because uh okay. yeah, because this is retrofit two and three. So
1: Artemis one doesn't have like space shuttle main engines on it. Like they, they did do some upgrades like mm. i think they did a, a little bit of uh, a little bit of retrofitting beyond just refurbishment but that's old information in my head so don't
0: <laughs> yeah so from what i'm seeing that seems about right because for example it says uh the artemis 2 that was the 2062 engine and that that was tested back in april of last year and then it was refurbished and put into storage so i guess they're done with that one
2: mm-hmm. so this is yeah just further down down the line
1: are you guys still disappointed that we're going to be chucking these beautiful engines into the ocean yeah yep that (laughs) every time they say extendable
2: in the news
0: yeah uh, i mean they're such great engines and they can't put them on a vehicle they can bring itself back because i mean how cool would that be if they could because i mean these are big engines and i guess when compared to a merlin 1d they're I don't know what twice the size, probably, or more than that. I mean, they're very big, and I don't think I don't right. think the one Ds are that big. So you would need a large vehicle. I guess the BE four engines are going to be comparable because I saw one of those when we were at the IEC conference, and mm-hmm. yeah, in person, it's just as big as in RS-25. So I guess it's possible to design a vehicle that has enough clearance that you could land that first stage, because that is exactly what New Glenn is going to be. So why can't NASA hmm. build a reusable first stage? Well, because yeah. obviously for a whole bunch of reasons, but how cool would that be if they could? Yeah,
1: so some corrosion resistance ought to do it. Yeah, exactly, Anderson. So it turns out that Artemis 1 actually has uh, straight-up refurbished Block 2 engines. So I don't I, I guess hmm. they didn't do any retrofitting. I think they just refurbished them and slapped them onto the new onto the new rocket.
0: They did definitely change, um what are they called the controllers, you know, the um I mean that's like something that they had to do for all of them because the SLS rocket is not the same as the shuttle. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So but yeah, I see what you mean. In other news about Artemis, um, let's talk about gateway. Uh so We have some official Mm -hmm. news now about what the status, the status is. I'm never sure how to say that word.
1: (laughs) So the key here is um, gateway is now non-critical. Well, so in in the past, we've talked about Levero moving into office and immediately reevaluating and de-risking Artemis. I think that's a great term, de-risking. And my thought is that if your primary goal is getting boots on the moon, Pulling Gateway out of your critical path is a really great way to de-risk Artemis, right? Now, is Boots on the Moon the way that we want to go back to the Moon, right? Because we really don't want to have another Apollo, right? Apollo was fantastic, but my point is that Apollo was a go there, do the thing, get the accolades, and then come home. And Apollo had an expiration date, for lack of a better term.
2: I remember specifically kind of getting called out for that because I... Was kind of saying I do want you know my own generation's Apollo, but then that doesn't really set you up for long-term success.
1: Well, and you know if it if it comes to no return to the moon versus just boots on the ground, I'll take boots on the ground any day. But yeah, so I, I am probably wringing my hands and getting a little worked up here though because uh, Laverro also said that basically Gateway was not gonna. Be able to stay in the budget, you know, unless they made some of the changes that they have. Um, they basically have reduced the complexity and reduced the cost of Gateway so that it, it doesn't compete as strongly with Artemis. Because uh, Lavero said, I would have had to cancel it. If it comes down to uh, either Gateway or Artemis, it's going to be Artemis. And so he pulled Gateway out of the critical path and then also simplified Gateway or is working towards that goal in order to make sure that Gateway still has a, a good chance, a good chance of actually happening. So, it, you know, this is this is reality. And I think that's one of the things that's really nice to see in the way that Lavero's actions have been pointing is it's all based in reality. Let's actually get this done with the understanding mm-hmm. that, you know, money is not a guarantee. Yeah, it's fair. So, so I can point out that, um, This discussion about budget and having to change designs in order to be able to conform to a budget comes right after uh, we heard about more SLS cost overruns. And uh, I was listening to uh, Red Planet Review by We Martians, um, and Jake pointed out that uh, one of the cost overruns was in IUS, the interim upper stage. Um, IUS is complete and is in storage. And somehow they just announced. I I think Jake said like a fifty percent cost overrun, and uh, he was really confused. How do you overrun costs on a uh, <laughs> on a yeah, component that's that's finished? So I I don't know what's going on here. I wonder if they're kind of um, smearing some budgets around and and looking at how much they spent on it previously, and it's not new money mm-hmm. being spent, but they're kind of shifting blame around a little bit to blame a constructed component that can't get canceled effectively. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. All of this uh, Artemis news is kind of in my mind, we talked about uh, Eric Berger's leaked plan that he was really certain about. And everybody else was like, yeah, maybe not, but um, we're, we're going to find out pretty soon. I mean, you know, he, he was saying, yeah, gateway's going bye-bye. And uh Levero confirmed that yes, a revised Artemis plan, which I'm assuming is, you know, uh the that document that we talked about a couple of weeks ago was one of the ancestors of this plan
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: or or maybe you know a fork uh, off to the side but anyway the we are getting a revised artist plan quote in the near future unquote um it's not finalized because they need budget and policy to be i think the quote was carved in stone first before they can really uh, finalize this plan but it it's coming and and we'll see what it ends up looking like and see what uh, what putting people on the moon uh, looks like at this point.
2: It'll be interesting to kind of go back and see the evolution over the years. Let's
0: just do two short suites this week. What is our first one, Dennis?
2: Well, first up, space logistics teams with DARPA on satellite servicing vehicles. Northrop Grumman announced that its subsidiary, Space Logistics, will be DARPA's commercial partner for the agency's robotic servicing of geosynchronous satellites, or RSGS, program. After its successful docking of the MEV-1 to an Intelsat satellite on February 25th, this partnership will allow Space Logistics to advance their vision of a fleet of servicing vehicles, including mission extension pods, which will dock with on-orbit satellites to aid their propulsion systems company aims to have their DARPA-related payload on orbit in 2022.
0: Next up, ExoMars gets delayed. The ExoMars mission scheduled for launch this year has been pushed back to 2022 due to a lack of time for qualification testing of various components, specifically two parachutes required for entry, descent, and landing, as well as spacecraft electronics. Ground tests of the parachutes were successful. However, due to the complexity of the parachute system, a full drop test must be carried out. The test will be done late this month, and overall, the ExoMars mission is close to Launch readiness however due to celestial mechanics it will miss its launch window this year and must wait till the next window in 2022 so just because of a delay of i guess a few months is it you know has to be pushed back two mm-hmm. years so that's unfortunate
2: it that is sounds like the right call though
0: they've done two previous tests i think at least two they have both failed that, yeah we that was kind about of a
2: problem yeah i remember after the second failure them talking about essentially how deflationary it was that like, they're like you know we really thought we kind of Fix the problems and to see it fail a second time was heartbreaking, essentially. But at least we got three other missions to keep us occupied.
1: Okay, stand by, we're looking at it.
0: questions comments and corrections and i guess we have a correction from law loving or a few comments so he's one of our listeners that people might recognize from this weekend's in spaceflight history because he has mm-hmm. won i think more than a couple times
1: oh yeah yeah and so first i wanted to apologize Law. you you wrote in i think like tuesday or wednesday and i totally did not reply to you but it was my intention to do so and i, I was uh, oh, yeah. just running around like crazy so he wrote a very well thought email, and I've been kind of rolling it around in my head and trying to figure out how I was going to address this. And I think the best thing I can do is to just read a, a couple of portions from his email because he's very eloquent. And I, I really appreciate not only the content, but the tone of this email. So here we go. In last week's episode, you have a short discussion about Tori Bruno's background and how he's more relatable to the average person than Bezos or Musk. In that portion of the conversation, I specifically remember Ben saying that Bezos started off rich and then got more rich. More broadly, the term uh, privilege, here I'm referring to wealth, was applied to both Bezos and Musk regarding their background. And this is what I'd like to push back on. Bezos was born to a teen mother, still in high school. His mom then divorced his dad, remarried, and moved the family to Texas. The family later moved to Florida, where Bezos worked at a McDonald's. Eventually, he would go to Princeton and become the VP for a hedge fund before, ultimately taking massive risk and starting Amazon. His outcome is unusual, to be sure, but his origins seem very relatable. Musk's story is similar. Similarly, less than perfect. Born in South Africa, his parents divorced while he was still a kid. He chose to live with his dad, but now considers that a mistake. And he calls his dad a terrible person. While in school, he was heavily bullied and even hospitalized after one altercation. He left South Africa for Canada solely because it would give him a better chance to end up in the U.S. where he believed anything was possible. Again, he managed to overcome some less than ideal circumstances to find himself extremely successful. The point I'm trying to make here is not that everything you said in that portion of the discussion was wrong. I agree with much of what you said. The idea that any American can become the next Bezos or Musk isn't based in reality. There are systemic issues that make achieving any level of success difficult for many, and it's my belief that much of any wealthy person's success is being at the right place at the right time with the right set of talents. And I would add the right skin tone. Tory Bruno's path does provide a more common and frequently seen way for the average American to achieve success. That said, I don't think we should give up on the idea that becoming the next Bezos or Musk is possible. Neither started from ideal positions, and their wealth was entirely created within this generation as a function of technological growth and innovation. They aren't the only examples of this either, so I don't think that their stories should be totally dismissed. In our lifetimes, I guarantee we will see more like them who capitalize on the developments that haven't even happened yet. I grew up in a small town in Appalachia where cyclical poverty is rampant. I moved back to this part of Tennessee after college and now work for an educational nonprofit leading career and workforce readiness programs for high school students. I see kids from tough backgrounds every day, and I have to believe that there is a brighter future for them out there. Whether this looks like Bruno's or Bezos or Musk, it's the idea that keeps me going in my work and in many cases inspires these kids to dream about escaping poverty. That's probably why I wrote a short novel here. So, thank you. I, I'm I'm not going to comment further because I, I don't think I could say anything better than that. Thank you so much, La. I, I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Is everybody ready for more Ben talking? Yeah, let's do more Ben
0: talking. Let's do this week in space life <laughs> history. So, we have two winners, Patrick McGuire and Jason Friesen, and also partial credit to the Greek and Anderson DeNova. So, the clue last week was next week in 1965, no vacuum in a vacuum. So, Ben, you'll have to explain what that is. <laughs> I remember you saying that you were talking about an actual vacuum in both instances, so mm-hmm. nothing to do with vacuum cleaners.
1: <laughs> Yeah. All right. So this week in spaceflight history is March 18th, 1965. It was the launch of Voskhod 2. Uh, so on board were Pavel Belyev and Alexei Leonov. They flew aboard a Voskhod 3KD. In the show notes, I'll actually link to the Wikipedia page. And in particular, on that Wikipedia page is an STL file, a, a 3D. Uh, model of the Voskod three k d and uh wikipedia actually embeds it in an in an stl viewer so you can actually click and scroll and and uh, look at it from different angles i think it's pretty cool uh the three kd uh flew only twice i believe uh its fir- this was its second flight its first flight uh was the month previous in february and it flew uncrewed that time. And this vehicle was notable for, I think, one thing in particular, which was the Volga airlock. So Volga was an inflatable airlock. It was actually longer than the descent module was in diameter. So the descent module was a sphere. And so this airlock puffed up and was actually longer than the diameter of the descent module. And so uh, they had this airlock uh, because they, they couldn't do, you know, basically a stand-up EVA like they ended up doing on Gemini, right? On Gemini, uh, you could op- uh, depressurize the whole uh, crew module, uh, open the hatch, and stand up and, you know, look around, or you could actually exit the vehicle. But in, in this case, uh, they needed to keep uh, the entire crew Module, uh, the the descent module uh, pressurized. There was uh, one very good reason for this. Um, The computers on board ran on vacuum tubes. And here's where the clue comes in those vacuum tubes would overheat in the vacuum of space. They needed air surrounding them to be cooled. So that's where no vacuum in a vacuum comes from. Um, There was also uh, another reason to keep the, the module pressurized, and that's that the air. Needed to refill the spacecraft if you emptied it all the way, was too heavy to actually fly on board the spacecraft. Oh geez, and that seems like a really good reason to keep the air inside your crew mo- uh, your crew module, <laughs> it's because you literally can't keep <laughs> enough air to refill it. Um, this flight marked the first use of an EVA with a specialized spacesuit, and uh, Leonov uh, did the EVA. He had two tasks. One was to attach a video camera to the end of, uh, of the airlock, and the other was to get out of the airlock and take photos of the spacecraft. Unfortunately, as with all of the early EVAs, we were still learning exactly how to perform an EVA. And so uh, poor Leonov's spacesuit uh, ballooned up. He, he was able to attach the, the video camera without much of a problem but once he was free floating uh the ballooning of his of his uh miniature spacecraft of of his spacesuit totally locked his arms and legs in place and it was so bad that his feet actually came out of his boots and it's hard to tell from the language i was able to find um in particular there's a wonderful interview slash uh, oral history hosted by the, the air and space museum. Uh, it's a, it's a written article. There'll be a link to that where Linov actually talks about his, his hand having difficulty with his hands and his gloves. And he says that his, his inner gloves actually attached to the sleeves. And I, I think what he's talking about is um, that attachment actually caused his hands to come out of his gloves as well, or or at least not sit properly in the outer gloves. So Leonov was not able to actually take any photos because the uh, the camera was mounted on his chest, but the camera shutter button was mounted on his leg, and he wasn't even able to reach his leg to hit this button. And then, you know, that's not where the difficulties with uh, ballooned up spacesuit end. Uh, he tried to get back into the airlock and was completely unable to. In fact, not only was he forced to enter the airlock head first, right? He was supposed to enter feet first, but not only did he have to enter head first, but he actually had to deflate his spacesuit. And he seriously had to deflate this thing uh, pretty uh, pretty drastically. He actually went below the safety limits in order to be able to uh, reduce the pressure differential enough to get himself into the airlock. And then once he was inside the airlock, he had to crumple himself up to be able to close the the outer door or to allow the outer door to close. Um, Belyaev inside the module, actually, um, he, he was the one who actuated the outer airlock. So once he was able to... Uh, oh, and by the way... He didn't report the fact that he was deflating a suit on the radio. He realized he had to do it and that, you know, he was basically by the time he he started deflating a suit, he had 40 minutes worth of oxygen left. So, he's like I I got to do this or or I'm toast. Um so he didn't uh, announce it over the radio because he didn't want to cause, you know, undue panic. Although yeah. mm-hmm. uh, at that point, they had already cut the live broadcast and from what I understand, uh his daughter, I believe, was pretty much freaking out on the ground, watching the the broadcast. Understandable. So once he is successfully back inside the crew capsule, the issues aren't over Um, because the EVA went longer than expected. The hatch uh, warped due to uneven temperature, uh, uneven heating. And so they had to really work hard to get the hatch to close. And then they were able to uh, jettison the heat lock and begin the deorbit sequence. Unfortunately, the computer uh, deorbit sequence failed, and they had to do a manual override. Um, this manual override was manual in every sense of the word. They had to do the calculations on board to figure out when to fire up the deorbit engines and uh, and how long to burn them for. Uh, They also had issues with their fuel reserves. They didn't have very much fuel left over for deorbit, although they did have uh, an emergency deorbit thruster, which was required because they were at a high enough altitude um, that they wouldn't have deorbited just due to drag. That's in comparison to um, uh, the Vostok missions, which were low altitude and would deorbit after 10 days anyway. Probably wouldn't be a Fantastic 10 days in orbit, but you know, you can survive. Oh boy. I'm betting a lot of people started shaking their heads when I announced this topic because it, it gets worse. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, their, uh, their manual deorbit burn, basically best case scenario would put them 1500 kilometers away from their targeted landing zone. Once they did the deorbit burn uh, the issues continued. Um, They were so cramped inside the module that they weren't able to get back into their seats, which caused a center of mass offset. So remember uh this this descent module wasn't the familiar biconic uh design that we're used to with uh, apollo and, and starliner it's a sphere and it it does the same uh basic technique where you have the center of mass offset from the center of pressure so that you have one side naturally leaning Um, but because they couldn't get back in their seats, um, the center of mass was not where it should have been. And then on top of that, the service module after jettisoning, it had a a cable that remained connected to the descent module. I, I believe it was a, a guillotine issue where they had, uh, you know, guillotines that would, would cut the cables, but it it might've been an explosive disconnection or just a passive, you know, yank it free disconnection. I, I remember, um, Scott Manley talking about this in a video that I watched years ago and it's left my (laughs) head. I'm sorry. Um, but anyway, they were connected by a cable. And so they basically started swinging around the service module in like a bolo fashion. And, uh, they, they ended up pulling 10 G's before they disconnected and a period of of that 10 G's uh, before the rotation started uh, were basically with the module flying backwards. So they did 10 G's into their webbing instead Mm. of 10 G's into the seat. Um, Mm. And Leonov actually burst some blood vessels in his eyes. So, you know, they, they start spinning, uh, luckily, the cable snapped at a hundred kilometers altitude, which was right before the drogue chute deployed. Oof! Th- this this is just miserable, right? It, mm-hmm. This is not the way you want spaceflight to happen. So they end up uh, landing uh, quite safely, um, but unfortunately, two thousand kilometers off target. That's not two thousand meters. That's two thousand kilometers off target, right smack dab in the middle of Siberia. Uh, the Voskhod. A module actually had uh, retro propulsion for landing to to slow down, the, just like Soyuz does to, to soften up their landing. Turns out you don't need it if you land in Siberia. Um, there was a huge amount of snow on the ground. Um, Leonov first said um, in, the, in the Smithsonian article that I linked to, uh, at one point he says that it's two meters of snow, but then he says that when they got out of the vehicle it was up to their chins, which would be much less than two meters. But either way, uh, this is a huge, huge amount of snow. Mm. When they uh, they jettison the door, you know, it's got propulsive or uh, uh, frangible bolts. Um, they they blow the door, and it stays right in front of the doorway because it was pinned against a tree, and so they had to, you know, rock the door back and forth to try to. Wiggle it away from the tree. Um, Once they got out, uh, they were drenched in sweat and in the middle of Siberia in winter. And so they basically had to go into survival mode. They were almost immediately spotted by uh, by civilians, which is actually really cool. Um, Mm. Moscow couldn't hear their beacon, but a number of civil pilots, uh, could hear it. So the first person to arrive was in a helicopter, which seems perfect. Unfortunately, it's a civil helicopter and they can't land in the middle of the Siberian forest. But basically, uh, the helicopter was able to get low enough to lower a ladder. And they're like, great, we're in spacesuits. We can't climb that. They tried. They were unable to. Um, and then a number of, uh, aircraft did flybys, uh, and unprompted these, uh, these airmen started dropping supplies. Um, one dropped a bottle of cognac that shattered when it hit the ground. Um, somebody dropped, a, a blunt ax um somebody else dropped some trousers and some jackets but they got caught up in a tree and somebody else dropped some fur lined boots that actually ended up making it to the ground and they were very happy to have those boots. They had to overnight alone. The temperature got down to negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. And remember, they are soaked with sweat from their reentry and then soaked in sweat from their uh survival efforts. And so they actually had to strip down as the sun is setting. They had to strip down to be able to dry off as much as they could. Um, by the way, the caps, the heaters in the capsule also broke. So that wasn't any help. <sighs> um, the next morning, um, an advance party arrived um, and was able to, uh, you know, build them a fire and deliver uh, food and, and drink and and, you know, begin to take care of them. Uh, But they had to overnight a second night before they could actually get out of there. So uh, 24 hours after the advance party arrived, um, they were able to... I I don't know why they didn't do this the first day. I guess they had to spend time stabilizing them with with food and fire. Um, But they ended up having to ski nine kilometers to get to the actual rescue party and get back to Moscow. Yeah. What a nightmare. So uh, once they got back to Moscow, uh, Leonov's report (laughs) was very brief. Uh, He said, provided with a special suit, man can survive and work in open space. Thank you for your attention. (laughs) (laughs) And then I I wasn't necessarily going to mention this, but uh, Jason Friesen mentioned uh, in an email uh, that he was interested in the fact that this ordeal led to the development of the TP. 82 survival pistol, uh, which flew on later flights. Um, the TP 82 was a three barreled weapon. Uh, it had two shotgun barrels on top and then a 39 millimeter barrel on the bottom and it fired uh, AK 47 rounds. And they, they developed this because, uh, Leonov was not particularly confident that they could have, uh, warded off any bears or wolves And I believe this was even during uh, the wolf mating season uh, when you really don't want uh, to encounter a wolf. So Mm. uh, they actually built a special gun to be able to fly later on just in case they needed to uh, defend themselves from wildlife.
0: I think if I were in his place, I would want a gun just for such a purpose because of the wolves and plus the bears. And I'm terrified of bears. And when you're out there, you know, in like that part of Russia, (laughs) they have giant brown bears, which are terrifying. Never mind space. It's just bears.
1: Anderson in the chat says that uh, when they actually flew out of Siberia, uh, the rescuer said that they saw wolf tracks around the spacecraft. Oh, boy! no, no. Yeah, that's that's really bad. Twist ending there. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So next week in 2008, the clue is McEwen's baby. McEwen's? Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, I have no idea what that's about, but if anyone out there thinks that they know, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. All right, moving on to upcoming spaceflight events, just a couple. First one is on March 21st. That is a Soyuz, and that's launching one Web 3 and uh, that's launching from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan, and this will be launching 34 satellites into low earth orbit i don't know how many there have been so far i've been keeping track of starlink more than one web but clearly they're making some progress too so this is launching on a soyuz 2.1b rocket and that will be using a frigate upper stage in that launch time is uh 1707 utc or 107 eastern daylight time so yeah good time to watch a launch so yep keep an eye out for that one
2: and then we also have a vega launch of the uh SSMS POC, where that's the Small Spacecraft Mission Service uh, Proof of Concept. Mission. So this is 42 microsatellites, nanosatellites, and cubesats for commercial and institutional partners. Um, the first uh, flight of a multi-payload dispenser funded by ESA, and so, or yeah, sorry, the first uh, flight of a multi-payload dispenser funded by ESA to allow the Vega rocket to deliver numerous small satellites to orbit on a single mission. And so this is either March 23rd or 24th, depending on where you live. So the launch is at 015110 GMT on the 24th. Or oh nine fifty one ten or sorry nine fifty one ten p.m. Uh, Eastern Daylight Time on the twenty third. So just kind of keep that in mind. It's one of these you know launches that brackets two days, and the uh, launch site will you know be
1: in uh, Kourou, French Guiana. Okie doke. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: So with that, let's deal with the show. We would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music, and today we have uh, some outro music being provided by Emery Stagmer. So that's what you're hearing now, and thank you Emery for that as well.
2: Yeah, totally. Um, also, we record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5.00 Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the
1: fly. If you support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
2: You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit, where or orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at the orbitalmechanics.com.
0: So that's it. We will see you next week on robot. Until then, later. Goodbye everybody.
2: See ya.